You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today, our guest is Ifer Karakaya Stump, an assistant professor of history at William & Mary. Dr. Karakaya's research focuses on the formation of the Kizilbash Alavi communities in Anatolia, particularly in the borderlands region between the Safavid and Ottoman empires during the early modern period. And she explores the transformation of these groups, typically referred to as heterodox Muslim communities, and we're certainly going to problematize that notion and, and unpack it a little, but she tries, studies the transformation of these groups over those centuries using, in part, uh, a, a new source base for historians, which is manuscripts from private collections and scattered in various libraries that are produced within these communities themselves. And Dr. Karakar, as I understand it, one of the principal issues with the historiography surrounding Kizilbash or Alavis in the Ottoman Empire is that the history and indeed the very categories themselves have been sort of created from without. That is, whether with the perspective of the Ottoman commentators that wrote on them or, for example, European Orientalists, these movements have always been defined on a basis of some kind of alterity. So before we talk about your sources and how they can help us rethink the history of Kizilbash Alavis uh, in Anatolia, could you give us uh, a definition, sort of based on your experience in research, a, a new definition of what we mean when we say Kizilbash, what we mean by the Kizilbash movement in the Ottoman Empire, and uh, what it represents? Well, you're absolutely right, because scholars indeed have often approached so-called heterodox communities in the Islamic world with an attitude of mystery. They have been seen as um, eccentric, marginal groups. And uh, uh, treating them in general, these, these so-called heterodox groups, uh, and, and, and the Kuzilbash Alevis in particular, uh, within this hazy category of heterodox folk Islam, gave the scholars the sense that uh, these are just amorphous communities who lacked organization or any sense of unity. But my research reveals that these communities, and, 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 and when I'm talking about the Alevis, I'm specifically referring to the, um, these are the descendants of the Kuzilbash mm-hmm. of the um, early modern period. Their uh, own documents, and these are uh, documents that have been preserved for generations in the private archives of Alevi Dede families. Uh, these these uh, documents and manuscripts, manuscripts, which have come to the surface relatively recently after the Alevi cultural revival of the um, early 90s, they show a, a, a much more complex and, and sophisticated socio-religious organization, um, what I call um, the Ojak system. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is at once a decentralized and semi-hierarchical socio-religious system, but it functioned, uh, obviously it functioned really well for centuries because it, it maintained, it sustained the collective identity 
uh, of these of these communities. And so you mentioned this dichotomy between folk Islam and I guess high Islam or even maybe orthodox Islam. Right. And sort of the way you're asking us to look at the issue of Alevis uh, is that they, much like all the other religious communities in the Ottoman Empire, especially Muslim communities, are sort of centered around these uh, Sufi orders or these lineages. For example, like the Bektashi order. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, before we get into this, I, I want to know, how did how did Alavis come to be known as Kuzilbash? Where does this term come from and why did this become a category? Well, the existing paradigm in the field, which I call the Köprülü paradigm, mm-hmm. sees these groups as, you know, like a continuation uh, of some pre-Islamic Turkish religious ideas under under a superficial Islamic veneer. So there's that kind of a reading, right? And this is a variation on, of course, an Orientalist narrative wherein these communities are like crypto-Christians or formerly Christian Anatolian right. uh, population that are only superficially Muslim. Right. There's actually an interesting dynamic there. I mean, the first people who used the term syncretism for, for the Kazulbash Alevis, they uh, were, were the, the, the Protestant missionaries in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And their reason for using this term, I mean, what, what they were trying to do was to prove that these groups were actually ancient, some ancient peoples of Anatolia who were converted by the force of the sword, sort of like crypto-Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and the, the, this concept, syncretism, worked really well for them because... Uh, um, you know that way they could explain away some of the Islamic components, and the um, the Turkish nationalists uh, in the early twentieth uh, century, they were in fact responding directly to the missionaries' ideas about these groups when they formulated their own narrative of of, of Alevi Kuzulbash uh, Alevi history. You know people like Bahasaid, for instance. They borrowed the same concept. They borrowed the concept of syncretism from missionaries, but they said uh, the, these peculiar rituals and, 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 and beliefs of, of, the, of these communities, they in fact go back to the pre-Islamic Turkish uh, religions or shamanistic cults. And Fuat Köprülü was the uh, uh, first scholar to sort of uh, uh, formulate this idea in a, in a more scholarly fashion. And his thinking functions within a binary framework based on a rigid separation between high Islam and folk Islam. And, and, and he establishes a direct connection between the so-called folk Islam and the pre-Islamic Turkish shamanistic uh, beliefs. And then he, um, uh, uh, he tries to further sharpen and reinforce this, this um, dichotomy uh, by several overlapping binary oppositions of urban versus rural, rural, settled versus nomad, pure versus syncretistic, and finally orthodox versus heterodox. So that's sort of the uh, the, the general approach in the field uh, to the whole question of where these communities came from, they, their genealogies, basically. But what I'm suggesting is uh, that uh, these groups, or, or the entire Kuzilbash movement, should be viewed as a union of various mystical currents and antinomian dervish groups that came together under the leadership of the Safavids in the mid-15th century. So rather than, um, like in the literature, 
the way they present it is that the Safavid Shahs somehow went to these Turkmen tribes who are uh, naive and uh, credulous and, you know, simple peoples, and they somehow, uh, uh, they deceived these Shahs sort of, or exploited their naivete, right? And, and, and sort of uh, made them believe that they were divine, and then they suddenly turn into these Kızılbaş armies. But it really is a very simplistic way of looking at it. And it doesn't really explain to us how the Kızılbaş movement could spread so fast and over such a broad geographical uh, region. So what I'm suggesting is that the the Safavi Shahs, they in fact brought together various different mystical communities under their leadership. And um, uh, so these groups, of course, shared in common some uh, very basic ideas about religion and Islam. These were all Alid movements, um, heavily mystical, and they were antinomian. So meaning, you know, they disregarded Sharia. They did not think of Sharia as as, as the fundamental aspect of religion, or they saw it as basically um, uh, as a a step towards greater spirituality. So these groups, they came together under uh, Safavid leadership. That happened, uh, you know, over the course of uh, uh, the second half of the 15th century. So it's those groups that we call Alevis today. Uh, they were uh, Kızılbaş. Uh, uh, they were called Kızılbaş at the time, even though, I mean, <laughs> as, a, as a side note, um, the idea that the term Alevi is of a 19th century origin, I personally... Um, I'm not quite sure about that. I, I think the term Alevi had been used before uh, by these communities themselves, even though the Ottomans refrained from using it because it's such an honorary, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 name, uh, uh, and they didn't want to use it for groups whom they regarded as heretical. We have much earlier references to these groups as Alevi. Uh, both in the Alevi documents themselves and in Ottoman sources as well. So another problem that arises out of the Köprülü paradigm you sort of critiqued here or that you're seeking to uh, kind of refute is this um, notion of ethnicity, right? In the Köprülü paradigm, these would-be heterodox communities uh, reflect aspects of an ancient or an old Turkish spiritual, pre-Islamic spiritual practice. And... um, of course, you mentioned Turkmen, uh, communities uh, sort of on the borders between the Safavid and Ottoman spheres. These communities would not be Turks in the in the 20th century definition of Turkishness, right? Many of them are speaking various Kurdish dialects and languages, some, some Turkish, some Kurdish. Could you unpack this uh, issue of ethnicity that we are always trying to deal with when we talk about Alevis in, in the present, sort of with a view to the Ottoman past? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to underline that my work at some very fundamental level involves a comprehensive critique of the Kupruda paradigm. So when I use the the term Turkmen, uh, I actually was referring to to the way Kupruda talked about these groups. My findings uh, uh, 
to definitely contradict his assumption that these were all uh, Turkmens. He had to make that assumption because, I mean, obviously his views were shaped uh, um, partially by the nationalist currents of the time. And mm -hmm. he was sort of looking for a reservoir uh, of, of Turkishness and, and that w was lost among the cosmopolitan Ottomans. Uh, and, and, and he thought that he located them among these heterodox, uh, so-called heterodox communities. But um, uh, a major finding uh, of mine in this regard is, is the previously unrecognized widespread presence in the region uh, in, the early, in, in the late medieval uh, uh, Anatolia of the Iraqi-born uh, Vefai Sufi order cutting across social, ethnic, and even sectarian divisions, and um, the historical affinity between this order and several prominent Kızılbaş Alevi Ojaks. This finding, insofar as it foregrounds the multi-ethnic Sufi milieu of the Middle East as the most appropriate context within which to explore mm -hmm. um, genealogies of Kızılbaş Alevism, challenges the long-standing cultural paradigm in the field, which assumes a rigid separation between high and low Islam and traces the origins of the latter to the um, pre-Islamic Turkish culture or shamanistic. In that regard, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's not only that today we obviously have um, uh, an Alevis who speak Kurdish or 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 Kurmanji or Kirmanch uh, or, right. or the Zaza language, which is uh, a different language. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not actually a dialect of Kurdish, but these three uh, language groups were always also historically represented within the Kuzulbash Alevi milieu. We have historical sources who refer. Uh, uh, to Kuzilbash tribes in, in the Chemishkezek region, for instance. Um, so uh, I, uh, that, that's definitely a, a, an important point that I, I also emphasize in my research. And as far as the, uh, the, the, the term Turk versus Turkmen, uh, I mean, that's another interesting uh, uh, question because among the Kuzilbash, uh, and, and really in the Ottoman world, Turk, often had the sort of the, the connotation of, of Sunni Muslim. Mm -hmm. So even in the Balkans, you know, rather than saying they converted into Islam, they would say, you know, they became Turkified or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so among the Alevis as well, in many regions, even among the Turkmen, Kızılbaş, uh, Alevi communities, the, the term Turk has that kind of sectarian connotation. Uh, so we really um, shouldn't conflate the two terms either, because right. historically Turkmen and, and Turk had really different different um, uh, signifiers. And so through these uh, through this conversation about sort of definitions with reference to present categories or categories existing in the historical record, if anything, what we've really seen is perhaps these categories aren't the uh, most useful for trying to study uh, the movements you're dealing with. So from here on out, I think we're going to be talking really, as you said, of lineages, of, of Sufi lineages of and of certain orders that, again, converged and then uh, took on the form of this movement. And so in order to find a, a, a road out of these uh, either anachronistic or axonymic categories, why don't you tell us about 
the uh, sources that you're dealing with, the sources produced by these orders that you found in the private collections and in the archives that uh, reflect a more internal view of Alevism in Ottoman Anatolia. Yeah, before I start out, uh, start with the documents, let me just say one more thing about this whole uh, issue. I think we have spent so much time uh, uh, trying to sort of uh, uh, like focusing on Alevism's constituting components and primordial origins that uh, uh, we have lost track of uh, uh, the, the, the real question, which is what provided uh, these communities with coherence, right? right? Uh, and, and what held them together? What defined their communal boundaries, both in terms of um, elements of cosmology and belief and at the more tangible level of socio-religious structures? And that's, that's sort of the focus of my work, right? One of the, um, the um, assumptions of Köprülü uh, uh, that sort of comes with this whole idea of folk religion is that um, these communities had no written sources. Because like I said, you know, uh, uh, so high versus folk Islam, mm -hmm. that sort of overlaps with many other dichotomies, which one of which is orality versus literacy. So high Islam represents, you know, it's a book-centered belief system, right. right? Whereas the other one has to be based on reality because that's what explains its syncretistic nature. So it's all connected with one another. Uh, and, and for a long time, I mean, historians didn't really care about these communities. I mean, they didn't really try to sort of uh, uh, um, study them for their own sort of intrinsic value. They sort of only, um, they, they would only refer to them within the context of the Ottoman-Soviet conflict. And, and never sort of, um, uh, like I said, never really cared about the history of these groups just for its own sake. Uh, and and p one excuse that was always used was that, well, they, they, they don't have any written, th there are no written sources about these communities, uh, which turns out to be not true at all because um, uh, when I first started my research, my idea was that I would have to use the Ottoman archival sources, sort of the typical uh, the usual suspects, right? I mean, the, the, the Muhammad uh, mm -hmm. uh, records, etc. But then, uh, you know, I, uh, this this was after the Alevi cultural revival, and I was coming across references to these to these documents that uh, uh, the, the families owned. And then, when I started doing my own field work and sort of trying to locate some of these documents, I was really struck by um, the, the, the amount of written sources that these groups uh, uh, produced over the centuries and preserved in their private archives, uh, as well as, of course, manuals, uh, manuscripts as well. So I'm, I'm a little bit confused as to why these uh, sources, which are relatively untapped, I guess is what you're saying, why nobody why there was not more suspicion that they would be there. We're talking about Sufi orders. Of course, why would, why would Sufi orders not have produced manuscripts? Right. How, yeah. Could you explain a little more why these remained un, uh, unknown. unknown for so long? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, we have to realize that even uh, talking about Alevism mm -hmm. or, or mentioning the word Kızılbaş Alevi in public was was a taboo in Turkey until the early 1990s. And still today, many Alevis feel the need to hide their true religious identities uh, 
so that they wouldn't be stigmatized or lose their jobs, etc. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is not a topic that people freely talked about. And, and these families, you know, they always felt the uh, oppression of the state and, and, and uh, as well as sort of the Sunni majority around them. So they were very careful. They very carefully guarded these documents from the gaze of outsiders. These are... Um, uh, the, the, these, these documents were a type of sacred trust uh, as well as a testimony to the family's Ojakzade status and safe descent, which have been handed down from generation to generation. So, I mean, it's basically, um, you know, that there was never, they never felt comfortable enough to reveal their documents. And, and, and we also know that historically uh, there were cases where the, 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 the state authorities would confiscate these documents. So it's not just general sense of fear, but that, you know, there were cases of confiscation by the state. And, and, and the other thing is, like I said, there, no historian was really truly interested in learning about these communities. There was this sense that, oh, okay, we know these are these amorphous communities, they are sort of shamans, and you know, there's really no clear structure to what they believe in. And so I guess a follow-up to that question is the question of were there also sources that would be, you know, would fall into the category of the Alavi sources you're talking about that maybe have long been in circulation and in libraries but were not identified Absolutely. as Alavi. Yes. They were just part of a broader corpus of Sufi, uh, you know, learning and Sufi manuscripts. Right. In the Ottoman Empire. There are several, actually dozens of Buyruk copies in the libraries in Turkey. Uh, often they go under the name of Menakib Imam Jafar or Menakib Sheikh Safi. Uh, Abdulbaki Gölpunarla, in fact, collected a number of them, and, and they're already in, you know, uh, in catalogs. So yes, uh, that too. And also, um, what I have found is, uh, like for instance, the Ojak of Dede Kargan, which is um, uh, a very important Ojak saintly lineage. Uh, centered uh, um, in, in Malatya, um, they have documents going all the way to the Memnuk era and, and earlier, uh, actually. And when we do archival research, we also find shejeres uh, that were confirmed by the Ottomans themselves, and, and, and copies of those shejeres, some of them are also uh, can be found in the Ottoman archives. It's just a matter of knowing where to look and, and you know, which families to follow. But yes, uh, definitely we can um, you know, correlate some of these documents with their counterparts um, in, in the archives. Let me actually give a specific example here. For instance, among the documents of this Ojak, the Dede Kargans, I found uh, a summary, like a hulasa of a, of a tahrir entry among, uh, 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 among their documents. And, and then uh, I, I went back to the uh, 16th century Tahrir's of the Malatya region, and there I found the exact entry in the, in, in the Tahrir's. So apparently, I mean, my understanding is that, and this is of course about this family's uh, Sayyid identity and how they, and, and derv that they were Sayyids and Dervishes and that they were recognized as such by the Memluks uh, and uh, and that the Ottomans basically uh, preserved the same or, or confirmed the same privileges. 
Um, so it seems like what happened is after the conquest of this region by the Ottomans, when they went to do the Tahrirs, they, um, they, they put down this entry they, they, um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Tahrirs and then gave a copy of it to the family so that you know, next time a, a Tahrir Amini comes, they, they would mm -hmm. have a document to prove it. And, and here you've raised another issue, probably we'll, we'll finish with this issue, which is that the dichotomy we started out with also implies that there aren't strong connections between the proper, so to speak, the proper Ottoman sphere and the Alavi sphere, that somehow these groups are separate and that they were not uh, formally incorporated into the institutions, the various institutions of the Ottoman Empire, which, of course, we find that idea to be a bit flawed. Yes, well, that's a very good question uh, because a lot of people, including uh, Alevi historians themselves, they for a long time they work with this idea that somehow, especially after the 16th century, after yeah. uh, you know Yavuz uh, Sultan Selim's uh, harsh policies and massacres, etc., that Alevis could only survive in the most remote, part, remote parts of Anatolia, like in, in mountains, in, in the mountains, um, in, in sort of isolated areas like that. You, you know, with that assumption comes the idea that, uh, that the Alevi community somehow survived outside the Ottoman system. And, and that, of course, also uh, fits well with, this, with, this, uh, with the observation that you don't really come across Kızılbaş Alevi communities in the Ottoman sources after the 16th century. I mean, I don't think that's completely true, but still, uh, Alevis definitely were within the Ottoman system, and they do show up in the Ottoman archival sources, but they don't show up as Kızılbaş right. Alevi communities because, you know, if you refer to a community as Kızılbaş, it's like calling them terrorists. You have to punish them. Mm -hmm. So in the Ottoman sources, they appear as regular Muslims. And, 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 and these uh, Dede families, they were often recognized as Sayyids by the Ottoman authorities as well and given certain tax privileges. Uh, again, I mean, this was not a recognition of, of their status as Kızılbaş Alevi religious leaders, but a recognition of their uh, Sayyidhood. So, uh, yes, so I, uh, I agree with you that that's kind of uh, a myth that we have to do away with and sort of try to come up with, with, with new innovative ways of uh, working with the archival sources. Right. It's all about the clues. If you can follow the clues, you see a lot more presence in the archives uh, than you would get from, say, a keyword search for Kuzulbash at absolutely. the Ottoman archives. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to ask, now that we've uh, established this framework, what are some of the themes that arise from your sort of Alavi-centered reading of this history fo um, based on the sources you've just described to us? Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, these documents, uh, the oldest layer of these documents, um, with the exception of a 14th century Ahi Ijazet Name, include uh, uh, over a dozen Wafai Ijazas. These are all in Arabic. The two oldest ones that I work with in my dissertation uh, uh, date from the 15th, second half of the 15th century, the rest from the 16th century. But since then, I have received... I have located um, more ijazas from the 15th century. So, so these uh, these ijazas uh, they clearly 
show a historical affinity between these families and the Wefai order. Um, the second theme uh, that sort of these uh, that comes to the forefront has to do with the um, um, uh, with the, with the uh, documents that originated in Iraq. Uh, these are documents from the 16th uh, century onwards. This is the second oldest layer, and they include uh, genres like um, uh, ziyaret names, basic documents uh, confirming these Dede's annual visits to some Shi Ali sacred sites, and they are paying homage to the um, to the Bektashi or quasi Bektashi convent in Karbela. This is, this is actually very important. There was a convent in the tomb complex of Imam Hussein, which appears as, as a convent of the Abdals of Rum in the, in the 16th century, but then from the 17th century onwards, it, it appears as a Bektashi convent. And these Alevi Dede families, they uh, would uh, pay annual visits to this convent to renew their ijazas as well as to update their uh, genealogies. Can I ask a little question about this type of source, the ziyaretname you mentioned? Uh, what, what's the content of a ziyaretname? Right. Basically, it lists all the places uh, that, that, that the individual dedes uh, visited. Usually, when they go to Karbela, I mean, the expectation was that a member of each dede family would pay an annual visit to Karbela, mm -hmm. both to sort of receive this kind of ziyaret name. It was, it was like um, comparable to Hajj, mm -hmm. uh, right, to, to, to Mecca. Uh, and also to uh, uh, renew their ijazats, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, so basically go to this convent in, in, in Karbela. And also, uh, uh, they, they would also oftentimes get an updated Shejere uh, from the Nakubile Shraf in Karbela. So it's it's a type of travelogue, but it's a travelogue that has sort of a formal um, right. function that it affirms their the, the position right. of these travelers, so to speak. Right. So it it shows a kind of an institutional linkage. Right. It's it's kind of how these informal networks functioned. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it was it was an important part of sort of maintaining this this sense of collective identity. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a textual community in terms of sort of sharing certain common texts, but it's also a, a community of of, of an sort of informal network of ziyaret yas and dargahs, mm -hmm. and, and these annual visits sort of were really significant in terms of like as a mechanism of sort of uh, communication, etc. Uh, there were also wandering minstrels and wandering dedes who went from one community mm. to another, which is a, which was another mechanism for sort of maintaining um, communications and unity. So, so this is sort of the second um, group of documents, and again, it it is significant uh, in a number of ways, but most importantly, I think, in sort of revealing us a completely new front to tackle uh, when it comes to this whole question of. Alevi Bektashi symbiosis, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and finally, um, you know, we already talked about it, uh, the, this whole broad, broader question of um, uh, um, the formation of, of these communities. 
because we, we have, for instance, Safavi Hilafet Names. They are much fewer in number because it was a lot more dangerous, obviously, <laughs> to preserve a document like that. And, and, and um, these Alevi Dede families, it seems like, preserved more of the documents that show their sayedhood mm -hmm. and their tax privileges. So, I mean, in these private archives, you have um, dozens and dozens of uh, documents that were issued by the Ottoman authorities related mm -hmm. to this whole um, uh, um, question of sayedhood and tax relief. But uh, I, I think the, the Safavi Hilafet Names are particularly important because we have so few of them. And they basically uh, sort of complement the revelation of the earlier, older documents that you know, some of these families had affinities with the Wafai order because uh, the, the Safavi Hilafet Names were given to members of these Wafai um, affiliated families. So these people were not only representatives of some well-established Sufi tradition, but then as part of the Kızılbaş movement, they were also appointed as Safavi um, uh, Khalifas in Anatolia. So um, it, it sort of you know complements the whole picture. But let me, before I finish this, let me just uh, say this, uh, because I think it's important. I looked at more documents than the ones that I use in my dissertation, and because there were so many, I just couldn't tackle them all. So I limited my study to the Alevi Saint lineages of Wafai origin. Right, that was my but question. But there are others too, yeah. Uh -huh. So Kuzulbash, uh, in that regard, uh, incorporates a number of lineages such as Wafai right. uh, that comprise a, a, a loosely organized whole. Could you give examples of some of those lineages? R right. Uh, another uh, uh, sort of strain that went into this, the making of the Kuzulbash milieu in southeastern and eastern Anatolia uh, was obviously the Nur Nurbakhshia order. Um, there are some amazing documents from a number of Ojaks uh, that still await uh, a, a systematic examination, but uh, I, I could clearly see that they were of Nurbakhshia origin. In the Balkans, uh, obviously, the, it was the Bedredinis who joined the uh, um, so you have a number of these groups who had a lot in common in terms of their religious outlook, but then they were sort of, they reproduce a new, or they produce a new collective identity under the umbrella of the Kizilbash movement over time. So the Ojak system, even though it is, it has histor a clear historical affinity with the Sufi structures with the Sufi orders, uh, though more sort of the antinomian, not just Sufi orders, but also antinomian dervish groups, such as the Abdals of Rum. There mm -hmm. are also Ojaks whose um, founders were uh, most likely members of the Abdals of Rum. And today there is a debate in Turkey, actually. Uh, the government, uh, the AKP government, one way they think they can uh, solve the Alevi uh, question uh, issue uh, is, is, is by sort of uh, granting them the status of a tariqat, right? That way they would not only sort of appease the Alevis, but also um, undo the, um, 
devrim yasası, the, um, uh, one of the key aspects of the um, Republican reforms, right? The, the, the closing of the, the tariqats, tariqats yeah. right? Um, but there is a problem with that. And it actually, it's part of that idea that recently they have supported the uh, creation of Jami Jemevi complexes, right? Mm -hmm. So what the government is trying to do is to sort of reduce Alevism to a classical Sufi order. But I find that problematic because uh, having some historical affinity or having uh, um, their origins in some sort of Sufi structure doesn't mean that they are, uh, they are a Sufi community in the classical sense of the word. I think over time, uh, as a result of an organic development, they created their unique socio-religious system, which I think should properly be called the Ojak system. So what is it that makes them different from what you said, a classical Sufi, Sufi order? Is it that antinomian flavor or is what is it? Yeah, I mean, we really need to... Uh, be wary of using established categories of sh Sharia-centered Islam mm -hmm. when we study these groups. When people ask you, okay, so tell me what is Alevism, they want, what they want to hear from you is, well, is it uh, within Islam or is it you know, something, uh, some other religion? Uh, and then if it is within Islam, then okay, well, is it a madhab, like a mezhab, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or is it a tariqat? It's as if there can't be anything, any other conceptualization, right, outside of these two categories. So it's, if, if it's a sect uh, right. within Islam, it has to be technically either a legal school, like a mezhab, mm -hmm. or a tariqat. What I'm saying is we need to get, sort of free ourselves from these categories and, and look at what these uh, structures are in their own term. And yeah, what differentiates the Alevis from the, um, uh, from the uh, sort of the classical tariqats is, I mean, you already mentioned a very important point here. These groups, the way they approach religion is very different. It's not legalistic. They, uh, they disregard Sharia. They don't think Sharia is the center of religion. They don't, their vision of God is very different. It's not a low... Uh, uh, law-giving God, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you reduce Alevism to a classical tariqat, then basically what you're telling them is first you have to go to the mosque because the real, real ibadet is, is the kind of ibadet that's prescribed by Sharia. And whatever else you do is just a sort of a, you know, a, a lower uh, category, right, of zikr. Whereas... Uh, for the Alevis, you know, Alevis have a certain type of namaz, but they call it halka namazı. And the namaz is part of the gem ritual. They don't face kuble. Uh, they sit in a circle, men, women together, and they face each other's jemal, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they don't think there is any other namaz other than this. So if you uh, uh, reduce them to a, to a classical tariqat, you are basically imposing on them this differentiation between Sharia prescribed real ibadet, which has to be in the mosque, 
you know, uh, men separate, women separate, etc. And then this this um, extra zikir, uh, you know, which uh, um, is is sort of secondary. But again, this just totally goes against, right. you know, the whole Alevi um, uh, belief system. Uh, in fact, I think. Part of the problem is when we talk about orthodoxy and heterodoxy in, in the Islamic context, aside from the problematic nature, the normativeness of these terms, um, I think uh, we tend to think along the lines of uh, Sunni Islam versus Shi'i Islam. We think that Sunni Islam represents the orthodoxy, Shi'i Islam represents um, the, the sort of the heterodox. Uh, version of Islam, but it, it this is very problematic uh, because I mean to begin with, uh, uh, it it sort of disregards the fact that within Shi'i Alid tradition there also developed an orthodox, legalistic right. Sharia bound Shiism, right? So in that regard, uh, Sharia bound Shiism and Sharia bound Sunni Islam are very much alike, right? If you leave aside the whole issue about like over the imamate issue, right? Um, whereas the main difference between these so-called heterodox communities, including the Alevi, the Kuzulbash Alevis, uh, and the rest of the sort of the mainstream Muslims, is that the latter group uh, uh, um, rejects Sharia. So I think the real difference is between mystical, esoteric Islam and Sharia-bound Islam. So in that sense, again, you know, uh, 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 classical tariqats mm -hmm. represent a completely different uh, uh, tradition. This is, of course, I mean, I haven't even said anything about the different ways the Ojak system functions. Uh, uh, its differences from the um, from the classical um, tariqat system. You know, in, in, in the classical, of course, tariqat uh, um, system. You have individual uh, talibs who go and, and and join an order, and then you know they 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 receive a certain kind of training, etc. Even though in the post-Mongol period, you have this notion of collective, you know, communal uh, disciples, right? So in, an entire community becoming a disciple of an order. So the the Alevi um, Ojak system has a has an affinity with that uh, communal discipleship. But today, I mean, as a result of its own organic development, uh, uh, the OJAC system works like this. Each Alevi community, whether you define it on the basis of a village or a tribe or a subsection of either of the two, is attached to a particular saintly lineage called OJAC. And members of these OJACs, the Dedes or peers, function as the religious leaders of their respective Talib communities. The Ojaks are in turn connected to one another in a loosely hierarchical structure, with certain ones being recognized as the Murshid lines within the Ojak network of particular regions. So, um, again, I mean, when you put it this way, it does uh, sort of, you, you, you see some similarities, but it's still not quite the same uh, as, as a classical uh, tariqat system. And when you describe this, maybe it's just... Uh a function of my own research, but it strikes me that uh, the late 19th century in the Ottoman Empire, when we saw a major shift in the redefinition of what Sharia is, 
uh, what orthodoxy is and uh, various attempts, uh, particularly during Abdul Hamid II period, to build mosques and schools in these various would-be heterodox communities. That that this this period uh, really created a long legacy in terms of um, present thinking about uh, Alevis in Anatolia, and so. In some way, the logical approach to rethinking this question is, of course, going to that pre-19th century period that you've, you've worked on uh, in your dissertation. And for those who have followed the podcast, they, they might remember John Curry's interview with uh, Nir Shafir and Amr Safa Gurkhan, where he explained uh, the history, the early history, the early Ottoman history of the Helvetii order in Eastern Anatolia. Could you maybe explain any possible links between uh, the the Alavi orders you're looking at and this uh, Helvati uh, order, which was very important in the early Ottoman period? I'm familiar with uh, John Curry's work. Of course, he's, he's a friend and a colleague, even though I, I wasn't able to listen to the podcast. But um, what we know is that the Ottomans tried to use the Halvati order to assimilate some of these Kuzilbashalevi communities because of the prominence of, of Ali or some Shi'i mm-hmm. Ali elements in, within the Halvati order. So uh, that's what we know. I mean, it's interesting the way the state looked at these communities. Um, the Ottomans, their policy functioned uh, uh, towards these communities functioned at, at, at different levels. On the one hand, they used a heavy hand and, and, and you know persecuted them and and uh, you know uh, exiled them into mm-hmm. different parts of the empire. On the other hand, they always were interested in sort of bringing them to the um, uh, to the right path, so mm-hmm. to speak. And they used different uh, um, different ways. Uh, towards that goal, and, and using the Halvetis sort of uh, as, as, as agents of assimilation was one of the earliest attempts, I think. Um, and then in the 19th century, I mean, what's interesting is the classical Ottoman discourse about these communities is uh, very different from the way Köprülü, for instance, presented them. According to the sort of the um, traditional Ottoman discourse, which very much uh, sort of, it owes itself to the uh, to the classical heresiographical tradition, right in Islam, which, you know, according to the heresiographers, all these heterodox movements were the result of a plot that was masterminded by an insincere convert, like a Jewish convert, right, who 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 tried to subvert Islam from within. I mean, that's that's the kind of meta narrative that you find in the heresiographical literature about the genesis of Shiism in general and these heterodox groups in particular, right? They are called Gulat. I mean, they're called Gulat not only by, actually the, the first ones to call them Gulat were the uh, uh, Shi'i, like the Sharia-bound mm-hmm. uh, Orthodox, I, I should maybe use that term, uh, Shi'is. But um, so, so basically, I mean, one sort of uh, uh, tradition one way of looking at these communities is that they are somehow enemies of Islam. They're botanies. They're dangerous. You know, uh, they're trying to subvert Islam from within. So they need to be crushed, right? This, is, this goes all the way to Imam Ghazali and the Ismailis and then the, um, Ibn Taymiyyah and, the, and the, the Nusairis or the Alawites in Syria. But then when we come to the 19th century, even though we have these earlier 
precedents, mm -hmm. like like earlier sort of um, uh, manifestations of a similar ideas, right? Trying mm -hmm. to use the Halvatis to assimilate them, but the the, the real sort of um, um, the the mindset behind this uh, uh, becomes much more clear in the nineteenth century. So basically. Uh, rather than viewing these communities as these dangerous, dangerous botanies who are trying to mm -hmm. subvert Islam from within and sort of giving them an agency mm -hmm. like that, they start writing about these people as ignorant, uh, uh, right. nomads, villagers, juhal, you know. Uh, uh, so basically they deny any kind of agency to them and they say they have been... Uh, led into these kinds of heresies because they are, uh, you know, ignorant and, mm -hmm. and they have been manipulated by some bad-intentioned um, charlatans, whatever. And therefore they need to be reformed. They need to be reformed. They need to be brought to the right path. So, so that sort of, uh, in a way, it's, it's, it's an improvement because in the first instance, they need to be destroyed completely. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this case, at least they are sort of willing to work with them and, and bring them to the right path. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this really, in a very systematic fashion, starts with Abdul Hamid. Right. But we have, again, earlier uh, precedents, like uh, Kanuni, for instance. Uh, at the time of Kanuni, we have this campaign to build mosques uh, uh, in Anatolia, in, in villages, not only in, in, in Kuzulbash, Alevi, Environments, but also in in, in areas where, um, I mean, in nominally Sunni regions, right? And because they, they want to bring them into the sort of the more more proper uh, Sunni fold. Mm -hmm. So the, the modern Turkish government very much is very much inspired by these earlier examples, particularly the 19th century efforts, sort of you know to send. Sunni missionaries mm -hmm. to these communities to convert them. And it's interesting that you you call them missionaries because I mean the the comparison is really clear between what like American Protestant missionaries were saying about uh, Armenians or Greeks in the Ottoman Empire, or even Absolutely. Catholic missionaries from from France were saying about their Eastern Catholic counterparts. Yes, I actually worked on the on the, on the American missionaries and their uh, activities among the Kuzulbash. And one of the things that really struck me was how closely the Ottoman government followed their activities among the Kuzulbash, mm -hmm. especially during the Abdul Hamid era. And they right. were really concerned. They really feared that these communities may convert and then collaborate. There are a lot of um, uh, uh, concerned uh, reports sent to Istanbul by the local valis about how these Kuzulbash are prone to uh, uh, work together with the Armenians Mm -hmm. against the Ottoman government. So uh, I use the term missionary uh, intentionally here right. because uh, th th that whole activity was very much inspired by the Christian missionaries, mm -hmm. I think. And I think with, with that, we've really come full circle from the beginning of our, our discussion about undoing the historiographical baggage uh, surrounding uh, Alevis in uh, the Ottoman Empire, and I think we've succeeded in doing that today throughout this uh, lengthy but very uh, informative discussion that raises a lot of questions that are discussed uh, further in some of your research. So I want to thank you for coming thank on you. the podcast <laughs> and talking with us. And for, for those who are listening and interested in finding out more, we're going to have a bibliography that includes some of Dr. Karakaya's publication as, whether, as well as some other secondary 
reading for those who want to get, gather a greater depth of knowledge about the topic. We'll also have links to some of the podcasts related to this today's topic. It's also a space where you can leave some of your comments and questions. Thank you for listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.